Today we are talking about narcissism. What a fun topic to tackle. And as I told a few of you outside, this is one of those days where everybody is turning to the person next to them and going, oh, this is so you. Like, <laughs> this is perfect for you. None of us are like, oh, wow, you got me, man. But um, I discovered some amazing things this week about narcissism. I've been loving this book that the staff has been reading called The Other Half of Church, some very enlightening things. And uh, just by way of review, we so far have talked about four keys to transformation in our spiritual life and our spiritual formation. One of those is joy. When we're in the presence of those who delight to see us and delight to be with us, then skipping ahead to the fact that that is how God feels about us every single day, apart from our performance, apart from whether we're good or bad, because he knows us from eternity, past and present. Our, our, our failures, our sin does not disappoint God. It does not surprise him. He is constantly delighted by our presence and to see us and how that has a transforming effect upon us. We talked about two words in the Bible. The Old Testament has a word called hesed. The New Testament has a word called agape. Both communicate more than our English words are able to uh, describe in one word. They communicate love, they communicate mercy, grace, unfailing kindness, um, unconditional uh, merit, on and on and on. So Hesed is the Old Testament, Agape is the New Testament. We talked about Hesed, Agape communities, and I will refer to that over and over again. And Jeff caught me last week and said, hey, What's the deal with Hasid? Aren't you going to describe that? And so I described it again today just so when you hear it, you know what we mean by that. Hasid agape communities are those that model the unconditional love and grace and mercy that God has modeled for each one of us, and we model that to each other. And so that's what that means and how that has a transforming effect upon us. Then we talked about group identity. And we, we've all heard how peer pressure can be bad because when you adopt the group brain, you start you stop thinking for yourself and you just start imitating the actions of those around you. And we all know that bad company corrupts good morals. But group identity is the positive side of that. And we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2 last week, verses 9 and 10, where he said, We are a chosen people, a holy priesthood, uh, that God has redeemed and saved, that we might proclaim his excellencies throughout all the world. So group identities remind us when we slip and fall who we really are. Hey, you, you made a mistake back there, but that, that doesn't represent who you really are. Remember who you are in Christ and get back on the path. Get back seeking him and serving him because that's what it's all about. So our, our group identity and our Hesed communities help stimulate us to love and good deeds. So then last week we talked about healthy correction and how healthy correction actually involves shame. There's a toxic shame which condemns which says you're ugly, you're fat, you're skinny, you're clumsy, you're dumb, and you'll always be that way. That's the message that we communicate. Healthy shame and healthy correction is reminding us who we are in Christ and walking with a person, journeying together because we all have flaws, we all have sin, journeying together back into the Father's presence and fellowship with him uh, through ways that the Bible lays out for us. So those are four keys to transformation. And today we're talking about narcissism, which is one of the greatest diseases in the church and in society today. And none of us consider ourselves to be a narcissist, but um, sometimes the mirror on the wall shows us things that we didn't 
see in ourselves. And um, the common understanding is that narcissists are self-centered and arrogant. We've all heard that, that they're egomaniacs. People with narcissism lack empathy. They have a strong need for admiration, and they want to be the biggest personality in the room. Here's a, a new definition of narcissism. If you're taking notes on your outline, redefining narcissism. Here's a definition I never heard before, rocked my world this week, and I've been thinking ever since in new ways. Narcissists are people who are unable to metabolize shame in a relational way. Narcissists are those who are unable to metabolize shame in a relational way. We're going to unpack that all day today. I have wondered for years now, why is it that more leaders are not team-oriented? And I've always thought, well, it's because maybe they were raised on an old-school model of leadership, kind of the hierarchy, the totem pole, senior pastors at the top, youth pastors at the bottom, and man, know your place, don't speak out of turn, kind of like the military, man, get in line and be respectful of those over you. And the minute anybody starts challenging your position, you need to shoot them down because, you know, they're a threat to you. And I've always wondered, why can't people embrace team and the beauty of team, leading with my strength, staffing to my weakness, embracing the success and the accomplishments of all? And I thought, what is so difficult about that? And it is because narcissists are unable to fulfill that need that we all have to feel special. They are unable to do that in a healthy relational way. And so that the way we're going to discover that narcissists feel that need is with accomplishments and with successes and with positions. Some of the most amazing narcissists in the world are some of the most successful people because they are driven they are driven to perform because that's how they get their validation. And the thing I discovered about myself this week is that I have never considered myself a narcissist because I grew up painfully shy. Uh, the last thing I wanted to be was a pastor. The last thing I wanted to do was stand in front of people and talk. I'd rather have a gun to my head. I was not the person that wanted to be noticed in the room and wanted to be the biggest personality in the room. I was happy talking to a few people in the back and people not even knowing I was there. So I never considered myself a narcissist because I'm not an egomaniac. I'm not somebody that wants attention, needs attention. But here's the thing I discovered about myself. I discovered that I have probably exhibited, well not probably, definitely, I'm gonna own it, definitely exhibited a lot of narcissistic characteristics over my years because of my inability to handle shame in a healthy way. I, I love that definition. I would go out on a limb to say that all sin, all dysfunction, is the inability to handle shame properly. Think about it. Every single dysfunction, every single addiction, every single uh, thing that's wrong in this world is because of an inability to handle shame in a healthy way. So oftentimes we are addressing symptoms rather than the core issue. And today we're going to talk about the core issue, which is shame. Narcissism at its heart is a shame disease. And we're going to unpack that today. In a healthy case, shame gets digested through relational attachments, 
like I said, through our Hesed Agape community. Our community helps us metabolize or absorb, if you will, the shame of our flaws. And when all of us are being vulnerable about our flaws and helping each other to address our flaws through healthy correction, then none of us really stands out as particularly flawed because we're all flawed. And so that's how we metabolize and absorb shame together because we admit we are all sinners in need of God's grace. We are all those with imperfections. Rather than going through life trying to hold this air of perfection and I've got it all together, and the minute people find out that I'm flawed and sinful and horrible, then my world falls apart because I believe that people only love me for the image that I project. That leads to stress. That leads to being neurotic and, and craziness. Most of the behavior that we see listed in popular and psychological explanations of narcissism is driven by the anti-shame strategies that narcissists try to employ. And as I said, these strategies aren't the disease itself, they're merely the symptoms. Let me give you some signs of narcissism. On your outline, there's going to be three main things that we talk about. We're not there yet. So just, if you're taking notes, these are just some general signs of narcissism. General signs of narcissism is a lack of concern when causing pain in others. Narcissists have very little concern when they cause pain in others. Uh, narcissists exhibit an us versus them mentality. You're either for them or against them. You're either a friend or an enemy. There's no in between. Uh, the creation of narratives that support the leader or the narcissist's view of reality. This is, this is reality. If you don't see it like this, then you're, you're in a fairyland and you're, you're off the page. Uh, harsh or abrupt firings of subordinates with little explanation or communication. So oftentimes we see leaders and people just get fired and there's hardly any explanation, any communication of why that happened. A culture where... Submissive obedience to the leader is more important than character and maturity. I don't really care about your maturity, your character. It's of utmost importance that you just do what I say and that you fall in line. Churches where the image and personality of the leader is inflated and projected to a size that overshadows Christ. Ouch. A leader who gets away with all sorts of behaviors that would result in the immediate firing of a subordinate. But the leader gets away with it because what would we do without them? What would happen to the church if they weren't here? You know, particularly in the personality-driven ministries. A leader who will turn another person from friend to excluded in an instant, in a heartbeat. One day, you're friends with this person, the next person, you're an enemy, you're excluded because you confronted them. You wronged them. You communicated something that says, I'm not on your side. And so you were blacklisted quickly. And lastly, a leader who has the ability to cut off a friendship and move on to other friends while feeling very little pain. And we've all been there. I went through this recently with, with uh, some people where it was just you know years and years and years of friendship and all of a sudden... They've moved on to other people, and it's like I'm not even a ripple on, in the water. Tough. Since narcissists don't know how to deal with shame in a relational way, 
they create complex strategies to avoid it at all costs. Two of the biggest weapons of a narcissist are condemnation and self-justification. Condemnation meaning just like shutting other people down by shaming them, toxic shame, or self-justification. Self-justification, I love this definition, is a weakness that masquerades as a strength. Self-justification is a weakness that masquerades as a strength. Some examples of self-justification. Statements that are belittling and impatient. I've seen at staff meeting where my colleagues are belittled and put down and they're dealt with with impatience because they, they just want to minimize their opinion and their input. Actions that shut down further communication and further discussion. We're done talking about this. That's the way it is. Just live with it. Behavior that communicates, I'm so much smarter than you that you would never understand my reasoning. Again, there's, there's no way to pursue that because I'm just on a whole other level. Don't even deal with me until you can deal with me on that level, which is never. And finally, actions and behavior that oftentimes covers for laziness. But it never gets addressed because who in the world is going to confront it? There's a lot there. We're going to unpack this together. Now we are to the outline. I want to give you three main signs of narcissism on the outline here. The first is that they refuse correction and they respond with toxic shame. Not only do they refuse healthy correction because any correction at all is a threat to them, it is an attack against them, and they don't know how to metabolize it and absorb it in a relational way, so they respond with toxic shame. Who are you? You're just an idiot. You're not even educated. You don't even have a degree. Who are you to tell me what to do? Oh, you're, that's working out well for you. Look at your marriage. Look at your family. Look at your, are you successful? How much money do you have? What have you done? You know, and they just, they put you down in order to, you know, you've all heard um, when it comes to correction, well, consider the source. That's kind of the thing. Well, consider the source. I like to say, consider the wisdom. If God could speak to Balaam through his donkey in the Old Testament, it doesn't really matter where the, where the message is coming from. Consider the wisdom of what's being said. Don't try and denigrate and put people down because of shame tactics, but narcissists are classic at this. They won't accept healthy, a healthy reminder when their character is flawed. Instead, they're skilled at using toxic shame against others. If I'm a narcissist, I will reject your loving attempts to remind me of who I am. I'll see our interaction as a threat. Our conversation becomes an argument that I must win. My motivation to defeat you is especially fierce if you're correcting my character and or my leadership. That's when it gets really, you know, minor things, maybe, but you, you, you address my leadership or my character, man, it's an all-out war, and I need to win every conversation, every exchange. If we're weak and untrained, the narcissist will make us think that we are the ones who are crazy. This is known in psychological circles as gaslighting. Like, I'm not the one with the problem, it's you. You're, you're the maniac. You're the delusional one. You're the crazy one. Because they're masters at wielding condemnation. Communities with rich soil, that we've been talking about the soil of our soul, the soil of this community and how important it is, 
Communities with rich soil train their people to protect themselves from toxic shame. And this renders powerless one of the narcissist's favorite weapons. So as we work on having a healthy culture, a healthy spiritual soil, that is a natural protection against the, the weapons and the attacks of narcissists. Funny how that works. You're refusing to accept condemnation, and you're also accepting the healthy shame of correction. You have given the narcissistic brain an image that creates a new option for behavior. Because you need to understand this. You cannot reform a narcissist by teaching them. That does not work. The only thing that works for a narcissist is a model that they can see that lives out in front of their eyes what it means to process, to absorb, to metabolize shame in a healthy way. When they see someone else doing that and they respect that person, that is the only thing that gets through to them. Oftentimes it's a child, it's a grandchild, it's somebody that they deeply love that confronts them with the, the shame and the, the, what's wrong inside of them and causes them to finally realize, I gotta deal with this, I can't keep being this person anymore. I can't keep projecting this image. Second, not just the fact that they refuse correction and respond with toxic shame. They are performance-driven and relationally void. It's all about performance. They don't care about relationships at all. If you are in relationship with them, you are only a means to an end. You are only a way to inflate their ego. You are only a way to build their resume. You are only somebody that helps them get a task or a job done. You mean nothing to them. And the, the, fact, the proof of that is when, when the job or assignment or task is over that you work them together, you are history. You are forgotten. There is no ongoing relationship because they are performance-driven. They don't know how to have healthy relationships. All of their relationships with others are extremely shallow, extremely shallow. An inability to metabolize shame inflates a person's need to be special. So when we can't deal with shame in a healthy way, we have a heightened need to feel special. All of us want to feel special. All of us want to be noticed. All of us want to be affirmed in our gifts and abilities and the things that we believe are the core of who we are. But when we can't deal with shame in a heightened way, we have an abnormal, heightened craving to feel special. And that's what makes narcissists seem like egomaniacs. Gosh, it's all about them. They just can't get enough. Always has to be. Every story, you know, like they keep interrupting people to shift the conversation to them and their accomplishments and their achievements and their family and their business and Gosh, will it ever stop? They have a heightened need to feel special. And since narcissists aren't relationally wired and able to satisfy this need through healthy relationships, they rely upon accomplishments, position, and attractiveness. Attractiveness. And what happens when you start aging and you cease to be that pretty little thing or that masculine model of just you know, masculinity, whatever, that you used to be, you know? When you lose your beauty, when you're not the fairest in the land anymore, what happens? Well, then you are the CEO or the owner of the business that nobody can 
compare with, you know. Um, and, and a lot of other things that have to do with accomplishments and position and attractiveness. Narcissists are driven to perform and succeed. And sometimes even Christian ministry is the vehicle. There are very many pastors that are complete narcissists because that position and that role and that title fulfills that need in them that they're not able to fulfill and satisfy in a healthy relational way. But they burn through staff and they burn through people because it, at the end of the day, it's not about exalting Christ and expanding his kingdom. It's about furthering their ego and making them feel special. And the sad thing is that's a black hole of need that will never be filled. Because the only one that can fill that for any one of us is Christ. So it's, it's never enough money. It's never enough accomplishments. It's never enough success. They use self-justification to defeat anyone who may seem to threaten their sense of being special. And please understand again, narcissists see everybody in only two categories, whether you make them feel special or whether you're a threat to them. There's, there's no other category. You either make them feel special or you're a threat to them. I can think of a lot of politicians right now that are just flaming narcissists by that definition. And it comes out in every interaction. Narcissistic leaders love a good cause. And their cause may be wonderful and it may be important. But results become more important than relationships. If anyone gets in the way of the great cause, they get sacrificed on the altar of the leader's vision. These bold leaders get results. And when they don't get results, they create a narrative that lays the fault at someone else's feet. Narcissists are great at using others' weaknesses against them while keeping their own character insulated and untouchable. They're masters at keeping themselves protected, untouchable, insulated, and preying upon. It's a predatory level here when it gets to extreme narcissism. Using other people's Weaknesses against them and making them always the reason for any lack of success, any victory. Well, the third thing is that narcissists exploit the weaknesses of others. We've already kind of danced around that. They exploit the weaknesses of others. God designed a complex network of neurological circuits to work together in our brain to help us stay relationally connected and attuned with one another. When we're healthy, they're all firing and working wonderfully. But think of a circuit breaker. You know, when you, we used to live in a farmhouse in Walnut Creek up in the Bay Area that had the old porcelain ball and tube. You know, you couldn't use the microwave and another appliance, a hairdryer at the same time. Everything would blow and possibly cause a fire. And you go down to the basement, you see all these wires that are taped together, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to just light up and be history. But think of this network like a circuit breaker. In emotionally intense situations, our emotional breaker pops, it snaps, and we're done. Our relational circuits dim, or they go off entirely, and suddenly we have difficulty feeling our connections to those around us. Relationships are no longer our first priority. We're focused on stopping pain and solving problems. We're no longer processing life through the lens of relationships. 
It's like, get away from me, leave me alone. I just need to figure this out. I need, I need some space. And we are just done relationally. That ceases to be an option for us. And during times like this, we lose not only our connection with others, but especially with God. It's just us at that point. And all of us get to points where our relational circuits are shut down and we want people and problems to go away. We've all been there. And in times like this, we can argue aggressively and we, be, we can become quick to judge. But narcissists take it to a whole nother level. Because they have little or no relational attachments, they prey upon the weaknesses of others. Most of the time, it, it should instill compassion in us for the weaknesses of others because we realize how flawed we are. And Scripture is constantly saying, you know, remember where you were when God saved you and remember where you were today when he showed you mercy and respond the same way to those around you. But no, narcissists prey upon <coughs> excuse me, the weaknesses of others. Instead of responding to weakness with compassion, they use it as an opportunity for exploitation. They use it as an opportunity to pounce and take advantage of the situation and take advantage of people. It's really quiet right now. <laughs> this is tough stuff, I know, believe me. This is a predatory state where narcissists evaluate others in light of how they can be used to their own advantage. Okay, that's a lot of setup. That's a lot of background. I want to take you to Scripture now, and I want to show you an example of somebody that, as I was reading all this stuff this week, this name just jumped off of the pages of Scripture, and I thought, it's a classic narcissist, and that is King Saul. King Saul. So we all know the story of when King Saul made the sacrifice prematurely when he was getting ready for battle instead of waiting on Samuel. And what did Saul do? He justified it. Well, you know, you didn't come and think they were getting restless and this. And so he blamed everything on the prophet Samuel and he refused healthy correction. But that's not even the example I want to use. I want to kind of walk you through very quickly, very top line. We're not going to do the reading. I'm going to summarize for you, and you can read this in your small groups and or in your personal study, and you can, you can pull out even more nuggets. But I want to walk you through uh, some of the chapters in 1 Samuel. The story of David and Saul's relationship is kind of chronicled from 1 Samuel 16 all the way through the end of 1 Samuel, which is chapter 31. In 1 Samuel 16, David is a shepherd boy who's out in the field who's completely overlooked by Samuel and even by Jesse, his father, when Samuel is praying over and deciding who is the next king of Israel that I'm going to anoint. And he gets to the end of all the sons, and after going, oh, this is surely the one because he's tall and he's a warrior in battle, and oh, this guy, you know, and then he goes, don't you have any other son? Well, yeah, David, but he's just a little shepherd boy out in the field. Bring him here. And so Jesse brings him there, and Samuel goes, this is a guy. God is telling me this is a guy. For God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And so David is anointed as the next king of Israel in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. Um, not long after that, he is sent to the palace because Saul is having those horrible afflictions where an evil spirit comes upon him and he can't get any peace. And so David goes and plays the heart for him and becomes his armor bearer. So here's the next king of Israel that's anointed to be, and he's going to play the harp for the king and to help him with his terror. 
And at the time that Saul sent for him, he asked, you know, who, whose son is it? Oh, he's the son of Jesse and all that. So that's when Saul first, he first gets on his radar. We'll skip ahead <coughs> to the next chapter, chapter 17. The Israelites are off at battle against the Philistines. And for 30 days, as we all know the story, Goliath comes out and taunts the armies of Israel and really God and says, you know, who's going to come out and challenge me? Uh, whoever it is, I'm going to feed their flesh to the birds of the air and, you know, we're going to be your, your victors and you're going to be our slaves. You know, we're going to possess you and own you. And David comes out to bring food to his brothers and supplies and he sees this going on. He's like, who in the heck does this guy think he is talking to God's people and to God himself in that way? And David says, I'll take him on. And you all know the story. I don't need to tell you. But you also know how it ends. And I will say, I, I, would, I would say to you that on that day, Saul starts feeling shame. Because think about it. Yeah, they got the victory. Everything ended wonderfully. But Saul realizes that should have been me. I'm the tallest in all of Israel. I'm the good-looking person. All Here's this tiny little shepherd boy who came with courage and faith in his Lord God and led us out in battle and won. That should have been me, and I am ashamed that I didn't take that challenge, but I let a little shepherd boy do that. And from that moment on, Saul asked David to come and live in the palace permanently. And it's not because, oh, I love you so much. It's because I'm going to use you. You're going to be very useful to me to accomplish a lot of things. Plus, I don't trust you. I want you close to me. And if you've ever been in that position, you know the difference between somebody that really loves you and has a relationship with you and someone who just wants to keep you close and somebody who just wants to use you and exploit you. And I would argue that's exactly what Saul was doing with David. Chapter 18, Jonathan, Saul's son, his soul is knit to David's. And Saul has David permanently live in the palace, but the women begin singing in the streets. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul starts going, that's not cool. How come he gets ten thousand and I get one? Th and Saul starts getting jealous and he starts getting envious and he begins to loathe and hate David. And throughout chapter 16 to chapter 31, I can't tell you how many times when Saul gets the evil spirit tormenting him, and David is still playing the harp for him after slaying Goliath, you know, and after being anointed king of Israel, he's still serving in this humble role, and Saul is throwing his spirit, David, and pinning his garments to the wall to kill him. And how many times David has to escape from that? And how many times Saul apologizes and says, I won't do it again, I'm sorry, I don't know what came over me. And if I'm David, I'm thinking, you're a madman, and I am not living with you anymore, and I'm not protecting you anymore, and if I have an opportunity to help you go be with the Lord, I'm going to exercise that. But David never does that. He's just an amazing model of humility. And so Saul, at this point, sends David out into perpetual battle. He's just constantly sending him out, kind of how David did later with Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Saul's mentality is the same. I'm going to put him out there in battle. Let the Philistines kill him. I don't need to work so hard. Let the Philistines take care of him. But the more Saul sends David to battle, the more successful David is. And the more enraged and shame-filled that narcissistic Saul gets. So Saul tries to pawn one of his daughters. 
Merib on David to distract him so the Philistines can kill him. But David declines. Who am I that I should become the son-in-law of the king? David is still humble. Who am I? Yeah, I killed Goliath. I've been anointed king of Israel. I'm all that. No, David's still, who am I? I come from a poor family. You know, who am I to be the son-in-law? He turns it down. So Saul uh, tries later to get his daughter, Michael, that likes David, uh, to, to marry David. And David declines again, saying that his family is too poor to marry into royalty. And so Saul comes up with this idea. Give me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, and I'll forget about a dowry. Your family doesn't need to pay me anything. Well, we all know the grossness of how you would get foreskins. No one's going to give you a foreskin. You're going to have to kill them to get it. That's, that's a long story short. David takes up the challenge and not only comes back with 100, he comes up with 200. So he doubles it, which just again is, yeah, bring it on. I'm a warrior. You know, I've killed lions and bears and God has protected me. And so again, Saul is enraged, but he gives his daughter Michael to David and thinks that, oh, well, hopefully she'll distract him. He'll be so caught up in love that he won't be the warrior that he's been all this time. <clears throat> so Saul eventually, in verse 29 of uh, chapter 18, literally views David as his enemy, which is what I said before. You turn from friend to enemy, from friend to excluded in an instant, because you're a threat. And David is now a threat to Saul. First Samuel 19, Jonathan confronts his dad, and tells him, you know, David has slain Goliath for us. He's freed the whole nation. He's played the harp for you. He's done all of these selfless, humble, wonderful things. And you have just acted horribly to him. you got to knock it off. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'll stop, you know. And yet he keeps on doing it. Um, Saul promises, but soon pins David to the wall again with his spear. And then David, at this point, is fleeing, like, I can't live in the palace because he definitely wants to kill me. He's tried numerous times, and only by the grace of God have, have I escaped. And so David goes off and lives with his wife on his own, and Saul starts stalking him where he lives and looking for an opportunity to kill him and says to his servants one day, you know, I want you to bring him back so we can just kill him. And so Michael, his wife, Tells him, my, my dad's nuts. He wants to kill you. You need to. So she lets him out by the window, kind of like Rahab let the spies out. And, and so David flees. And then uh, Michael takes a household idol, puts it in the bed, dresses it up like David, and tells the servants, Oh, he's sick in bed. You know, he's not feeling well, so he can't come out today. And Saul says, I don't care. Bring the whole bed with him in it. Let's just kill him. That's how nuts Saul is at this point. He's in narcissistic rage. Well, on and on and on. You know, I, I, I could go on to talk about the times where David is, we, theologians, historians reckon that it's probably about 15 years that David is fleeing for his life from Saul. He's been anointed the next king of Israel, but he's running for his life, hiding in caves, acting like a madman in foreign country and drooling on himself and spitting so that he'll be overlooked, doing all this crazy stuff. And inside he's thinking, I'm the next king. I'm the one who killed Goliath. I'm the warrior. I'm all of these things. And numerous times God gave Saul into David's hand. And David goes into a cave and Saul's sleeping. And David's servants are like, kill him, kill him. Now's your chance. And David's like, who am I? to kill the Lord's anointed. And so he'll rip off a piece of Saul's clothing and later on from a distance show it to Saul. Look, 
I was this close. I took this from your garment. I could have killed you, but I didn't because I respect you. Would you please lay off now? And, and Saul doesn't. So Saul is the perfect example of a narcissist gone nuts. It's all about him. Egomaniac. And we think, well, he's just, you know, classically we think about everything. We think about arrogance. And, but the issue is he can't process shame relationally. And so he's trying to achieve, he's trying to accomplish, he's trying to be all that. And David keeps upping him and doing better than him, and so it's driving him to madness. Unfortunately, the narcissistic I-must-win strategy can also spill over into the Christian community, which explains why we see narcissistic behavior in leaders of organizations and churches, because they manage shame by winning instead of metabolizing shame through hesed relationships. That's why we see narcissistic tendencies um, in a lot of CEOs, a lot of head pastors, a lot of lead elders, a lot of hidden influencers. Examples of narcissistic character are on display in rubber stamp boards, where a board is just kind of there to rubber stamp the leader's vision and not to challenge them and hold them accountable. Personality-driven organizations and organizations with very poor financial accountability. All of these are signs that are covering for a narcissist or a narcissistic leader. When a Christian community has low joy, weak hesed, poorly developed group identity, all of the things that lead to transformation and safeguard us, the culture is vulnerable for narcissism to spread. That's why as we focus on these healthy agents of transformations, we we protect ourselves against narcissism and every other disease within the church and the world at large. Without strong attachments and relational skills, narcissism flourishes, especially in leadership. Giftedness, ministry success, and bold leadership may look good on the surface, but the inner motivation has been detached from relationships. That's the problem. They talk about discipleship to prove that they're serious about obeying Jesus, but they rarely, if ever, do anything about it. The actual hard work of discipleship is neglected. So there's all the rhetoric, there's very little action. There's, there's all the posturing, but there's very little follow-through. A narcissist may accept correction on a peripheral issue from time to time to be able to say, look, I'm humble, I can take correction, but it's on stuff that doesn't really matter, not on core character issues, especially their leadership. And when they are confronted, they will make everything a peripheral issue rather than a core issue. Here's the problem. We choose narcissists as our leaders because we view that as a strength. Like they get the job done. They're so confident. Think of how many politicians we've chosen because of that. They're so good at justifying themselves. They're so good at having an ant all the answers and sounding right. People who have not been trained to spot self-justification misjudge it as confident leadership rather than a weakness masquerading as a strength. I want to close with some thoughts about how do we diffuse narcissism? How do we battle against narcissism? I would argue, and this book that we've been reading argues, that loving narcissists means to confront them. Healthy correction. You don't give a narcissist a free pass. And just say, well, that's the way they are. They're always going to be. Let's just leave them alone, and hopefully they'll, they'll do minimal damage. No. 
You lovingly confront and address a narcissism. You don't allow them to stay stuck in destructive behavior. But here's how you do it. Number one, you don't do it alone. You do it with a community of mature leaders. Secondly, you reject their condemnation. You don't believe the lies. They will respond with condemnation, with toxic shame. You don't buy it. You don't believe it. You reject it. Thirdly, remind yourself of your identity in Christ, and you let your Hesed Agape community remind you of your group identity, who you are in Christ, not who you are according to the narcissist's portrayal of you. Next, you remain humble. Humility is always a great posture, and people receive things best when we have an attitude of humility rather than that of superiority. We resist the urge to prove that we're right, And we always keep a high level of compassion because our goal in every every, uh, conversation, every interaction is discipleship. It's not a one-time correction. We want a relationship where we can have discipleship over the long term. If you find that you're a narcissist, one of the best paths out is by sharing emotional pain with others and praying for them. One of the best ways to change your heart is to enter into the pain and empathize with the sorrows and the pain of others and pray for them and get the attention off of yourself. And also seek out a model or an image of somebody that metabolizes and absorbs shame in a healthy way because you're going to learn more through their example and model and that image than you are through a thousand sermons. We're almost done here. Healthy soil is crucial as we're finding out not just for character formation, but also to protect us from deadly diseases like narcissism. If our community is deeply bonded in joyful love, narcissistic trickery and um, ploys will have no power to separate us. People with narcissistic tendencies will feel uncomfortable in our community because they won't be able to manipulate our identities, which is the very thing they want to do. Jesus alone becomes the standard of who we are and who we're trying to be and how we act. Since our community has a culture of correction that promotes relational health, everyone is gently correcting everyone. No one stands out as particularly flawed. I like what the author says here. This is a quote. Seeing narcissism through the eyes of scripture and brain science helps us feel compassion for narcissists. They're caught in a great weakness and they don't realize it. When we show them hesed, agape community, Christ-like group identity, they can learn how shame can improve their character. As they metabolize shame relationally, they can eradicate self-justifying behavior and address the things that need to change. Finally, I'll say this. Sometimes it is absolutely necessary to remove a narcissist from a position, from a job, because of the damage that they're doing. And at the end of the day, their soul is more important than that job, than that position, than anything else. And sometimes that's what we have to do in loving a narcissist, is just get them out. I'm going to invite the team back up right now. And uh, just there's no easy way to wrap up today and put a bow on it and leave us all with a smile. But here's what I'm going to say. Um, I was going in a different direction next week, but God gave me a whole sermon this morning. I've never had that happen in my life. 
I was almost tempted to preach that sermon today, but I thought, no, that's not fair to Brittany and the team that prepared songs around this theme. And then I realized that God had given me the sermon for next week because it follows up so beautifully. And that is, what does it mean for us to go out and draw people out of shame? That's the next step. And it's more than just lovingly correcting people. What does it mean to go and find people where they're at in their shame and draw them out? That's where we're going next week. So stay tuned. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for a brutal message that convicts every single one of us because all of us have exhibited tendencies and characteristics of this at one time or another. For some of us, it has defined us and been our singular identity. And it is brutally hard to hear your truth. But God, I thank you that there's a way out of this. There's a way to healthy relationships. There's a way to healing. There's a way to um, deal with the shame that we all feel and find the joy and the freedom that you want for us. So thank you for your word and thank you for the community of friends that you surround us with. God, I pray that as we give today, whether online or physically here, that the monies that we give would be multiplied by you and used for the needs of this church and the needs of those around the world that we support. We give this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.